The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Revelation 14. Looking this morning at the second half of Revelation 14. The book of Revelation was given to us to enable us to see invisible things, things that we could not see otherwise. I believe that faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we can see invisible spiritual realities. Based on the word of God, we're able to see truths, past, present, and future that are spiritual, that are invisible. We're able to understand them. And so God has given us this book of Revelation and it reveals Jesus to us above all else. And we have Jesus revealed as he who conquered death. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. This Jesus who is radiant and glorious and dressed like a high priest, moving in Revelation 1 through the seven golden lampstands, ministering to the local churches around the world and across every era of church history. Speaking words of rebuke and correction and encouragement to each of the seven churches. But then a vision that John had where he was invited to come up through the heavenly realms, through a doorway into the presence of Almighty God seated on a throne, Revelation 4. And all of of, uh, heaven is, is worshiping and bowing down, 24 elders and four living creatures and 100 million angels and they're worshiping Almighty God as he's seated on his throne. And we saw in Revelation 5 that he had a scroll in his right hand and it was sealed with seven seals. And no one was found who was worthy to take the scroll and break open its seals and read it until Jesus came, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain. And he had the right, he alone had the right to take that scroll and to break open its seals. And he did break them open, seven of them, and and this unleashed the final events on earth. And they're going on before our eyes. I believe that the seven seals are happening even now and have been happening for 20 centuries. Not everybody believes that about the seven seals. But there are just wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes in various places. Uncertain signs showing that this world is wrong. There's so many wrong things in this world. And that we're heading toward a place where there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. But with that seventh seal came seven trumpets and a ravaging of the earth's ecology. The devastation in Revelation 8 and 9 that the seven trumpets brought on in which all the green grass was burned up and a third of the vegetation and the trees were burned up and a third of the ocean turned to blood and a third of the living creatures died in the ocean and a third of the drinking water turned bitter with wormwood and and a, a dark billowing cloud of demonic assault came up from the nether regions of the earth and tormented earth's inhabitants for five months, tortured as though they had been bitten with the stings of scorpions. And a a war, a demonic army it seems, slaughtering a third of mankind, 200 million strong, slaughtering a third of mankind, Revelation 8 and 9. And then behind the scenes we have in Revelation 12, a dragon, Satan, who has a vigorous, aggressive hatred for the people of God and who is thrown down from heaven to earth with a third of the stars, a third of the angels that we understand as demons 
And he's pursuing the woman, representing Israel, I believe, and her children, representing uh, all believers in Christ. And so Satan hates the believers and he persecutes them, filled with rage because he knows that his time is short. And in Revelation 13, we see his, his final, most vigorous and most effective assault on the people of, of the world. And that is the Antichrist, the beast from the sea that we've been studying. And this Antichrist comes up out of the, out of the sea and he dominates the world. He rules the world, the whole world, and every tribe and language and people and nation is given into his hand, and he rules over them. And there's this other beast, the beast from the earth, called the false prophet, who sets up a religious system. And all of the inhabitants of the earth are forced, on pain of death, to worship the Antichrist and to receive a mark on the forehead or on the hand, without which you can't buy or sell. And so it becomes a religion, the final world government, the final world religion, no separation of, of religion and state at all, a complete combination under the uh, reign of the Antichrist. That brings us to the chapter we're going to look at today, second half of it, Revelation 14. It begins with 144,000 that are sealed, and these seem to be courageous, bold, pure, holy emissaries from God, human beings, based on the earlier sealing of the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, perhaps Jewish, male evangelists, because they refrain from being defiled, it says, with women. And they're totally dedicated. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes, and they are witnessing courageously. And so the word is going out, even during the time of the Antichrist. The gospel is going out, and God sends three angelic messengers who the sum total of their message is they flying in mid-heaven is to fear God and to give Him glory and to believe the gospel and to trust in Christ and to flee the intoxication of the system of Babylon, to flee the wickedness of this world system on pain of eternal death. We talked about that last week, the torments of hell. And that brings us now to the second half of Revelation 14, and that is, in my Bible, it says the harvest of the earth. We have... Uh, two pictures of the reaping of the earth brings us to a, a conception of Judgment Day. Now, I began speaking this morning to you about the eyes of faith, the ability to see what we cannot see. And it is vital for us, by faith, to see the coming judgment. It is vital for us to understand that Judgment Day is coming. The end of the world is coming. It doesn't matter what we will see with our eyes when we leave this place. As things go on as it seems as they always have. There is a hidden spiritual reality given. We are warned in scripture that a judgment day is coming on the earth. And we need to be ready for it. You may wonder why it hasn't happened already. You know it says in Genesis 15. God made a promise to Abram that he would give him the promised land. And he wanted to know how he would know he would receive it. And God made a, a solemn covenant with him in Genesis 15. But then he said something fascinating. Abram had asked, how shall I know I will receive the promised land? And he made that covenant with them. But he told them what he did not ask is when would it happen? And he said this, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own where they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I'll punish the nurse, nation they serve as slaves. And afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Wow. God was waiting 
for the wickedness of the pagan Amorites in the promised land to reach its full measure. For four more centuries, God waited. As they worshipped pagan idols and bowed down before the works of their hands and they passed their own children through the fire in worshipping bloodthirsty demons. He put up with that for 400 years. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God is waiting patiently. We also have a picture of this in Daniel chapter 5 with Belshazzar's feast. You remember how Daniel was one of the exiles from Judah. And he went and served the courts of the Babylonian kings. And the final Babylonian king was Belshazzar. And despite the fact that the walls of Babylon are surrounded by the Medo-Persian army, yet he had a big drunken feast. And he drank toast to the gods of bronze and iron and wood and stone. And they used the sacred vessels that had been taken from the temple of God in Israel. And suddenly a hand appeared and wrote mysterious words in the plaster on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. No one could read them. Nobody could understand them. They brought in Daniel to reveal the mystery. And he read very plainly what these words said. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Numbered twice because it's coming immediately. Your days are numbered. And you, Belshazzar, you have been weighed on the scales and you have been found a lightweight. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The, the massive weightiness of God that should be in our souls. You have been found, Belshazzar, a lightweight. And your kingdom is divided and taken from you and given to the Persians. That very night, Belshazzar died. Our days are numbered. Our days are numbered. And God is waiting. God is very patient. Judgment Day hasn't come yet. But it's coming. And his patience is for twofold, I think. Two reasons. One is to give the elect time to repent and come to Christ. And the second is to allow the sin of the Amorites to reach its full measure. To allow sin to reach its maximum level in the providence of God. And so God is waiting patiently. And unbelievers do not make the best use of the time, unfortunately. In Romans 2, 4 through 6, it says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Uh, this morning, as I, I practice my sermon every week in the treehouse, I'm probably one of the few pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention that does that. I don't know any others that do. But as I walked down, I saw two squirrels, and they were working on their nest. And I just stood there and watched them. And they had their mouths full of something from the forest floor. I don't know, pine needles, leaves, I don't know what they're doing. And they're climbing way up 30, 40 feet in the air to this ugly looking mass of debris from the forest floor. 30 feet, and they're just going down, dumping it there and coming back up. Up, down, up, down, up. I only watched, I didn't have time for much, but I just stood there and watched, saying I need an illustration for my sermon. <laughs> no, but at every particular moment, these squirrels are going up. 
you know, it's lighthearted, but in a, in a way, as far from that as you can imagine, every single day, unbelievers are adding a little bit more to God's memory of how they have lived that day without thanking Him, without giving Him praise and glory, without loving God with all their heart, without loving their neighbors. There's others storing up a little bit more every day, storing up God's wrath. And it's tragic. And it's our job as believers to warn them that that's what's happening. That's what Paul did in Romans chapter 2. But day after day, unscrupulous businessmen are crafting new ways to defraud people of their money. Corrupt politicians, national, national leaders are using their positions of power to advance themselves and their own interests. To resist the gospel spread. Urban gangs are initiating new members by forcing them to do wanton, malicious murder for no reason, just to show their manhood. Drug addicts are resorting to crime to feed their habit. They can't get out of their enslavement to the drug. Internet pornographers are filming the next images that are going to enslave people weeks or months from now. Terrorist cell groups are planning, plotting their next acts of mayhem and murder to further their political or religious agendas. Ordinary unconverted people are pursuing worldly agendas and pleasures without a single thought of thankfulness to God. Unsaved teenagers are swimming in a sea of social media, unable to tear their eyes away from their smartphones, unable to lift up their eyes and look at the God who created them, who knit them together in their mother's wombs and has sustained them every day of their young lives. Secularists and social sexual deviants on college campuses are indoctrinating the next crop of college students in a, an aberrant, unbiblical sexuality and a way of looking at life. It's going on every day, around us all the time. The river of sin continues unchallenged. And people will think everything goes on as it always has and nothing's going to change. How wrong they are. We can see that day coming. We can see the day when the sickle will swing and, and human history will be cut off. That's the image we have here in the second half of Revelation 14. Now, as we come to this text, we have two different harvests. One of them appears to be a harvest of standing grain, although it doesn't say that directly, but it seems that way, like wheat. And the other, a harvest of grapes. It's told, part A, part B, it's hard to know if we've got the same harvest told two different ways or two different harvests. Now, we know the second harvest, the harvest of grapes, is definitely a harvest of wrath. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, The angel swung his sickle on earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. And they were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press. Blood. Rising as high as a horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. There's no doubt that that depicts God's wrath falling on the rebels and unrepentant sinners of the earth. <clears throat> Terrifying image. What about the first image, that is the Son of Man reaping the grain with his sharpened sickle? Now a sickle is a curved knife, like a heavy, big, curved cutting tool that was used before the automatic reaper uh, harvesters or combines that we use now to harvest grain. And so it was just by hand, by manually, they would take this long stick and they would swing it like this and then just cut the standing grain in this way. Or maybe it would be a, a smaller handheld tool for cutting grapes off of the vine. Sickle. Now, many commentators think that these two 
and separate harvests are two different kinds of harvest. The first one done by Christ is the harvest of the righteous. The harvest of the elect. And many images linking evangelism and missions to the image of a harvest are throughout the New Testament. So it's a valid idea. For example, in in Matthew chapter 9, the last few verses of Matthew 9, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Or again in John chapter 4, when Jesus has that incredible conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well and just talks to her about spiritual things, and she is on fire for Christ at that point, goes into the Samaritan village. Meanwhile, the disciples who are in there all that time, buying food for lunch, didn't say a word about Jesus, apparently, came back and said to Jesus, effectively, let's eat. And Jesus said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then comes the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're white for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may reap together. Others have done the hard labor and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. So there's that same image. Powerful image of evangelism and missions. Charles Spurgeon in 1876 uh, preached a sermon on this text entitled The Harvest and the Vintage. And he did exactly that. The harvest is the harvest of the elect by Christ, bringing them into God's garner, into his barn. And then the second is the harvest of wrath. However, there is one scripture in mind that I have in mind that says it's possible these are talking about the same. They're just two different images for the same harvest. I would like to ask that you put your finger here in Revelation 14 and go to Joel chapter 3. Joel is one of the minor prophets, one of the last uh, books of the uh, Old, Old Testament. And uh, I, I want you to keep something there in Joel because we're going to return to it later. Joel chapter 3. But in Joel 3, 13 and 14, it has these words. Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. So that's an image very much like what we have in Revelation 14. Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. It's Joel 3, 13 and 14. Now we'll come, we'll come back to Joel 3. So just hang on there. Keep something there at your place. Uh, but... It seems there it's just two different language for the exact same harvest. Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Trample the grapes for the winepress is full and the vats overflow so great is their wickedness. So it's possible. I don't need to decide this either way. Both of those things are going to happen. They're going to happen. Every last elect person chosen by name from before the creation of the world will most certainly come to Christ and they will be brought into God's barn And spend eternity in the new heaven and new earth with Christ. None of them will be lost. For those God uh, foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And all of the wicked will be harvested and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist said this very plainly. 
In Matthew 3.12, he says of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering up the wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. All right, so let's look at the details of, of uh, Revelation 14 and verse 14. He said, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Son of man, there is no doubt in my mind at all that the son of man is Jesus Christ, the glorified Christ reigning up in heaven. We have that son of man image as I already mentioned from Revelation chapter 1 where John saw one like a son of man, dressed like a high priest and moving through the seven golden lampstands. But the whole image comes from Daniel chapter 7, which is the beasts from the sea, the idea of world empires that are coming, and of one horn, the Antichrist. That's what D Daniel 7 is all about. And in the midst of that, we have the heavenly court seated, and the Ancient of Days, God the Father, seated on his throne in a river of fire flowing from the throne... And then suddenly, in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Exact same language as Revelation 14, 14. There before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days, Almighty God, and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the Son of Man. I believe that may be the most important prophecy about Jesus in the Old Testament. The only reason I say that is because the stumbling stone was the incarnation, the idea that that. The word became flesh, that a human being that you could touch and listen to and be with and eat with and who could die was actually Almighty God. And so Jesus consistently called himself Son of Man. That was his number one title for himself, Son of Man. In other words, read Daniel 7. <laughs> That's what he's doing. Son of Man, I am human. Son of Man means human. And so in this vision, in verse 14, we have this vision. He's coming on the clouds of heaven. And son of man means he's human. But on the clouds, it's a picture of divinity, of deity. He comes on the clouds of heaven, and he's got glory and sovereign power, and he receives the right to be worshipped by every nation. And so that's the combination of him being divine and human. And in Revelation 14, he's depicted as sitting on a cloud. In the Old Testament, these images, whenever you see clouds connected with God, he's bringing judgment on the wicked. Psalm 97 says, The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. So when God comes on the clouds, same thing in Psalm 18, he comes in judgment. This is the very thing that Jesus prophesied that his enemies would see. When he was on trial before the Jewish authorities, Annas and Caiaphas, these 
thoroughly corrupt and wicked men. And they charged him under oath by the living God to tell whether he was the Christ, the Son of God. Are you claiming to be God? And Jesus said in Mark's gospel, I am. Now that's enough right there. But then he quotes Daniel. Actually, he uses Daniel and makes a prophecy. In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So the idea of Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven is he's coming in wrath and judgment to bring an end to the wickedness of the earth. So this is the Son of Man glorified. He's in a position of judgment. The crown, the golden crown that he's wearing represents his authority as king. It's a kingly, it's kingly authority. The gold is purity and value. And the, and the glory of Jesus is his right to judge all the earth. He has the right to judge every human being. In John 5, 22 and 23, it says, The Father judges no one, uh, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Do you not realize what an incredible statement that is? We are supposed to honor Jesus the way we honor God. We're supposed to give him the same honor, the honor of Almighty God. It's incredible. And the Father is jealous for that glory. He says in Isaiah, he will not share his glory with a created being. He's not going to share his glory with an idol. But he will share it with his Son. Because his Son is the second person of the Trinity. His Son is Almighty God. And he wills that the whole world will see his glory. He wills that because Jesus was willing to die, even a death on the cross, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the Father wants us to glorify and worship Jesus. And so he comes on the clouds in a position to judge. As he says in Matthew 25 in the account known as the sheep and the goats, Verse 31, 32, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So he's going to come in his glory and all the angels will be with him and all the nations will be assembled before him and he will judge them. And that is his glory he has, the Father has given to Jesus the right, the authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. That's John 5, 27. All right, so he comes. Look at verse 14 through 16 again. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a Son of Man with a crown of gold in his head and that sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was seated on the cloud, take your sickle and ripe and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so he was seated, he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Now this is a bit strange, but this exalted glorified figure, the son of man seated on the throne, seems to take an order from an angel. So commentators have a hard time with that. It's a bit of a head-scratcher. If you can only get one head-scratcher in the book of Revelation, my congratulations to you. It's not an easy book, and these images aren't easy. 
So I don't fully know why it seems like Jesus takes an order from an angel. I don't think he's taking an order. I think it's just that the angel is a messenger from God the Father telling him the time to reap has come. And it just shows that even Jesus in his reaping is under the greater authority of the Father. Remember how Jesus' disciples in the days before his ascension, after his resurrection, was instructing them and teaching him many things. And they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. So the Father decides when it's time to reap. And he knows very well what it means. When that side goes, it is over. It's finished. It's done. The time has come. The harvest is ripe. Now, either this is the elect, all of the elect have come to Christ, or it's the wicked, all of the wickedness, the sin of the Amorites has reached its full measure. But it's done now. It's done. All the days ordained for the earth were written in God's book before one of them came to be. And the time has come now to end it, to bring history to an end. And like it says in Joel 3, 13, swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes for the wine press is full. And the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. The last time, times, the last days will be days of overwhelming wickedness on planet earth. Greatest the world has ever seen. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 says, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The overwhelming majority of the world will worship the Antichrist as God. And it will be like the days before the flood, as Jesus said it would be. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord in the days before the flood saw how great man's wickedness had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. The sin of the Amorites had reached its full measure. And so the angel says to the Son of Man, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. It's like in the days of Noah when Almighty God, He's the only one who has the right to do it, shut the door to the ark. And that ended the opportunity for salvation at that point. It's over. And so everyone inside the door, everyone inside the ark is saved. Everyone outside will perish. And so the time comes to swing the sickle. Now God is waiting. 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10 says, Why? The Lord is not slow in keeping His, pay, his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then a few verses later, 2 Peter 3, 15 says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Waiting for salvation. But when the elect have repented, all of them entrusted in Christ, maybe there will be an angelic messenger going up, telling heaven the last elect person has been saved. George Whitfield, one of the greatest pre preachers, I think, in the history of the church, very, very powerful preacher of the gospel during the colonial era, right before the revolution, probably one of the most effective evangelistic preachers ever, 
very dramatic. He had a great voice and a great sense of drama. And he used to think about angels going up from that assembly saying, the last person that's going to be converted today has been converted. And he would call to the angel, who he named Gabriel, telling Gabriel to stop. Isn't there room for one more? By the time he's done, everyone wants to be that one more person. Very powerful. But the whole thing is founded on the idea that today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to come to Christ. There's not going to be an opportunity after this, the, the sickle is swung. It's over. Now is the day of salvation. And so the Son of Man swings his sickle. Look at verse 16. What a simple statement. So he was seated on, he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. That's it. I mean, there's no process. There's no process to describe here. It's just instantaneous. I think about the sickle. It says it's sharp. Sharp. Like the word of God. The word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything's uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we will give an account. And so we've got this sharp sickle. So here's a stalk, and here comes Jesus' sickle. And it just doesn't even slow down. It just goes right through. There's, there's no particularly difficult stalks. Particularly tough for the sharpened sickle to go through. It just goes right through. Now, popular culture depicts a figure known as the Grim Reaper. I remember working in an engineering group once with a guy, a floor worker. He had the most disgusting tattoo I'd ever seen in my life. It was on his forearm. And it was the Grim Reaper. And it was this black hooded character with a scythe. And its end was red and it was dripping blood. He put that on his arm. I thought that was strange. But I remember talking to him about Judgment Day and saying, you know, you have a constant reminder, you do anyway, that, that the end is coming. It's going to come at some point. But the, the reaper in the Bible is not grim. He's glorious, actually. He's a glorious reaper. I mean, that, that's a, like a living skeleton. Have you ever seen these depictions? In the early days of World War I, a, a, a Dutch propaganda artist named Louis Raymakers did a powerful cartoon after the Germans had invaded Belgium and had killed hundreds, maybe a few thousand people. And it's this skeleton in tattered clothes with this scythe, and there's all these people in front of him. And he's just, and he entitled it, The Harvest is Ripe. Now, little did he know what the next four years would bring, that the hundreds that died that those first few days in Belgium were as nothing compared to the millions that would die in World War I. The end, in the end, the true reaper is not grim but glorious. He's not impersonal. He is very personal. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's Jesus Christ. And each one of us is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And hence the first harvest. The second harvest is clearly a harvest of wrath. Grapes of wrath. Look at verses 17 and following. We've got the crushing of these grapes in the vintage, an angel comes from the temple. Again, the picture of the initiation of the judgment by God in his temple. And God initiates this. He sends the angel from the temple, his dwelling place. And I think about Habakkuk 2.20, which says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. 
And so out of this glorious, powerful temple comes this angel. And he also has a sharp scythe. The angels are involved in the reaping and the ending of human history. And then a second angel exhorts or commands this reaping angel to begin his work. Verse, four, verse 18 says, Still another angel had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine for, because its grapes are ripe. So the, the vintage is the grapes of wrath, these wicked rebels who refuse to follow the truth, to live by the truth, to believe in Christ. And this angel is identified as having the charge of fire. So I think that goes back to that image in Revelation 8 of an altar and an angel comes with a censer and takes fire from the coals and hurls them to the earth. So there's a sense of that judgment of God that came as a result of the prayers of the persecuted church as they rose crying out for justice. And this is God's answer. Grace and tolerance for the wicked of the earth comes to an end. Clusters of grapes perhaps represents some of these teeming cities. Massive population centers. Different tribes and languages and peoples and nations. And they are harvested quickly. Multitudes, multitudes, said Joel in the Valley of Decision. The harvest is a display of the wrath of God. Look at verse 19 and 20. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. And they were trampled in the winepress outside the city. And blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Honestly, this crushing carnage is hard to read. It's hard to picture it in your mind. It's bloody. Bloody. Winepress back in those days was used to put the clusters of grapes in. and, And servants would trample them, crush them with their feet. And at the bottom there would be a trough and the juice would flow out and be caught in vats and then be fermented into wine. Uh, the flow of blood is difficult to even comprehend. Uh, it says that the blood came out and out of the wine press up to a height of horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. 1,600 stadia, almost 200 miles. 200 miles? Horse's bridle, about four feet. So it's just waist high, I mean, like this. Uh, just, it's an incalculable amount of blood. It's, it's more, I don't know how wide it is. We don't really know. Maybe it's just a narrow trough. You could imagine, like, they designed the temple where the animal sacrifices, there would be a trough and blood would flow out from that because, like, a quarter of a million sacrifices at Passover were offered. So you could picture that kind of trough of blood. I mean, it just goes long distance. It's hard to even imagine. And then, and then it says, outside the city, this is a very significant statement. Outside the city, that's the place of, of judgment. It's the place of wrath. It's exclusion from the presence of God and from the glory of his majesty. They're thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outside means cut off from the fellowship of the people of God. That's where Jesus went to die for us. It says in Hebrews 13, Jesus was crucified outside the city gate. He was gone to the place of, of judgment and condemnation and hell, really, for us. Rejection. So that's the idea. And so also in Revelation 22, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city and outside of the dogs, outside of the dogs, outside of the city, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, uh, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and 
practices falsehood. So as this second angel swings his scythe, the wicked are harvested and trampled outside the gates. Now, as I finish, just one last question is on my mind. It could very well be that this represents the final battle, really. The battle of Armageddon. The forces of Antichrist gathered together to trample out the last vestiges of rebels who will not receive the mark of the beast, will not bow down and worship, and they're huddled, hiding, waiting. And Jesus said, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. And so in Revelation 16, it speaks of, of this battle of Armageddon. In Revelation 17, the kings will gather together and give their power to the one, the Antichrist, for the purpose of destroying the people of God and fighting against Christ. And I believe that Joel chapter 3 shows this. If you would look back at Joel 3, this is my laminated sheet with, with which I do scripture memorization in the car. I'm doing Joel. I've been doing Joel for months now. And I just see so much correspondence between Joel 3 and Revelation 14. If you look at verse 9, Joel 3, 9 and following, it says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there. Where? Valley of Jehoshaphat. That means the Lord judges. Assemble there. Come quickly, verse 11, come quickly, all you nations from every side and assemble uh, there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. That's powerful. So there's the battle. All the nations, the wicked nations, together in one place, and down come the warriors from heaven. Verse 12, let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. That's powerful. So we're going to see in Revelation 16 and 17 that battle described. And I think that this in Revelation 14 is a foretaste of it. It's basically like we've gone ahead to that final moment when the harvest will be, will be gathered in. But it's in the context of a battle. Hence the flow of blood makes perfect sense. They came to shed blood and their own blood is going to get shed. If you look at uh, Revelation 19 now and we'll finish with this. This is depicted, the battle is depicted... Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. 
He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. That's Jesus in his second coming glory. Now look at verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. That's bring down your warriors, O Lord. I believe in my personal belief, not everybody agrees with this, but this is when the rapture happens. Others disagree. But I think at that point he's going to go and send out his angels and he's going to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth and we will go up and meet the Lord in the air. And he's descending with those who have already died and been with him and they will come down and we will together be as one and we'll come down because he's coming down to do some business. That's the image I have of the second coming. If you disagree, wait until after the sermon to tell me, all right? But then he comes and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. That sharp sword that comes out of his mouth is equal to the sharpened sickle with which he harvests the nations. I think it's the same. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so what is he coming down into? He's coming down into a battle. A gathered battle where the ten kings come together to give their power to the one, the Antichrist, and they're gathered there to fight against the people of God and to wipe them from the face of the earth. And Jesus says, no. And he comes down, verse 17, and I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So that's a parallel image to the river of blood flowing in Revelation 14. That's the second coming in the final battle. So what application can we take from this? Well, I've already said it once. I can't say it enough, I think, while there's still time. This is the day. Of salvation. This is the opportunity we have before these things actually happen. Before the ark door is closed and there's no salvation left. Before we find ourselves on the wrong side of that door. So I'm pleading with you, you, if you're outside, you know you're outside, come to Christ while there's time. Come to Christ while there's time. I mean, we're celebrating the first coming. And how, how different are yeah, the first and second comings? How different? How, how meek and mild was Jesus, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And how beautiful is that image of the gentleness and peacefulness with which God is standing and appealing and pleading with you to repent and come. And for those of us who have already found safety in the salvation of Christ, you know our job is to get this message out. They're not ready for what's coming. They don't know that it's going to come on them suddenly, it says. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, security, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. 
But this, you are not all in the darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all sons of the light and sons of the day. You don't belong to the night or to the darkness. So let us be self-controlled, living godly and upright lives. 1 Thessalonians 5. We're supposed to be children of the day, knowing what's coming. And so the twin exhortations of 2 Peter 3, in light of all this, be holy, be evangelistic. That's what we're called to do. So this month... You've got, you got a month to talk to some unbelievers about the real gift of Christmas. God sending his son into the world that he might save us from the coming wrath. Ask what they think the season's all about. Ask what their spiritual background is. Talk to them about their religious convictions or their holidays and festivals. And then share, share the truth. Something that's eternally consequential, bigger than just one season. Jesus isn't just the reason for the season. He's the reason for everything. Twelve months a year. Share with people who need the gospel. Close with me now, if you would, in prayer. Father, these are potent images, far greater than we could bear if it weren't for the truth of the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We know, Lord, that you are a patient, a patient God. We know that you are waiting for the sin of the Amorite streets as full measure and you're waiting for every single one of the elect who you knew by name before you formed them in their mother's womb, you knew them by name, waiting for each one of them to repent and come to Christ. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to be active, that we would not scatter but gather with Jesus. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and he said, everyone who does not gather with me scatters. Help us, O Lord, to be active in evangelism and gathering people to come to Christ. Help us to look beyond the festivities and the shopping and the errands. To look to a surrounding world of people who are without hope and without God in the world. Because judgment is coming. The scythe is, the sickle is going to swing and it will be over. Help us to be faithful until that day comes. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.